the conventional multifamily guys that would be looking to typically buy an Austin deal or a Florida deal or fill in the blank conventional deal have tried to get back into the student space, which is kind of interesting. A lot of new capital on the sidelines looking to get into the student space. I like to say I've got a lot of jobs as a broker. Standing between a man and his dreams is not one of them. So we welcome these folks into the space. This episode of the Student Housing Insight Podcast is brought to you by the generous sponsorship from BSB Design. So if you're involved with the development or renovation of student housing, I really want you to lean in right now. Have you experienced construction delays and cost overruns because the architect, they just didn't take the proper steps on the front end of the process and it's caused delays on the other side of the process. What is it that Benjamin Franklin said? Uh, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The architects, designers, and staff at BSB Design live by that statement. BSB Design specializes in purpose-built off-campus student housing, and they have over 50 years of experience in the multifamily industry. They've got a proven track record for creating innovative and successful student housing communities. But what truly sets BSB apart is their unique design process. And if you haven't gone through it, let me kind of explain it. So unlike other firms, they conduct a a comprehensive one to four day uh, charrette is what they call it. It's a very meticulous approach that allows them to identify and address any potential issues early on. And that's going to help eliminate the delays and really ensuring a smooth project. I personally had the pleasure of being involved in this process with a mutual client between mine and, and BSB. And I just really can't emphasize you know, enough how beneficial it was. Uh, the on-site review allowed us to, to catch and resolve potential issues that, that could have caused some significant delays and headaches for myself as I was the one, <laughs> I was the one involved with, with opening it up. And so if you understand student housing, you know that if you miss a delivery for fall move in, it's going to add another, uh, certainly another year, if not two years to be able to stabilize that project. So don't waste any more time with subpar architecture firms. Experience the difference with BSB Design. Visit their website at bsbdesign.com to learn more. We'll also put that contact information in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO and founder of Student Housing Insight. Yes, SHI is not only a podcast, but we're a platform for off-campus student housing professionals to connect, network, and learn. You can find out more at studenthousinginsight.com. Well, good morning or good afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world. So we are well into the month of October. That means we've capped off the last leasing season and we are officially reporting on the fall 24 lease up. And by we, I mean the royal we. But, you know, thinking about that 23 lease up, what does that final snapshot look like? 
How is that going to impact operations moving forward, as well as the prospect of transactions, you know, over the next, call it three to six months, and financing in the sector as well? Well, that was the subject of September's Shop Talk. If you don't know what Shop Talk is, I'm not sure what rock you've been (laughs) living under. But seriously, if you don't know about Shop Talk, it's our monthly webinar for owners and operators of student housing to come together and review pre-leasing performance data from College House. We also get legislative updates from the National Multi-Housing Council, and we typically have a topic of the month. Student Housing Insight is the producer and the host of the webinar, but is very much the industry's webinar. It's led by a team of industry professionals, and if you haven't attended one yet, you can register to get the monthly invites, as well as review past webinars at shoptalk.info. Again, that's shoptalk.info. But back to September Shop Talk uh, and this final snapshot of how Fall 23 lease-up ended and how that's shaping things up as we move forward, we put together a great panel that included executives from, well, included three executives, one from an operating firm, which was Jen Cassidy from Cardinal Group. We also brought in two other panelists from Walker and Dunlop, Will Baker, who oversees multifamily finance, and also Chris Epp, who leads up the student housing brokerage at Walker and Dunlop. The insight they provided. I I mean, I got to be honest, it was very timely and I I just wanted to make sure that we got it in podcast form. So for this episode, we're going to be providing the audio from that discussion. But, you know, before we get into it, let's talk a minute about the kickoff of fall 24 pre-leasing. You know, it's typically this time of the year and I'm recording this on October 10th, I believe it is. It's usually this time of the year or historically, going back maybe four or five years. Uh, This used to be the time of the year that when you're in student housing, we were finalizing the renewal rate so that, you know, we could get those renewals out by Thanksgiving. We would start modifying our marketing plan for spring semester so we could make sure that we could push to be about 70% pre-lease going into, you know, spring break in March. Now we're pushing residents to sign renewals on move-in day. And if you're not pre-leasing by October 1st, you're behind. And here's the crazy thing about it. It's the students that are demanding it that early. It's been something that the industry has been pushing to happen earlier and earlier. But what we learned last year and, and what I'm seeing this year, it is really the parents and the, and the students who, who don't want to get caught behind and not have the living arrangements that they want to have. And they're really pushing it. And hey, I'll take it. And listen, I know if you're in one of those tier two or tier three markets, or if you're in a market like Morgantown, West Virginia, or Austin, Texas, I get you guys may not be experiencing that. And I got to tell you, I think about you at night before I go to bed and say a little prayer for you. But like I said, I'll take the early start and the high front end velocity and I'll take the rent increases. These are increases I've never seen before in student housing. So, is it going to continue is the question. Well, guys, I I just got off a preliminary call or a a preliminary meeting, I should say, for October Shop Talk. And I've got to tell you, based on the data through Friday, October 6th, so, you know, about three weeks of the pre-leasing season so far, pre-leasing velocity is less than 1% behind year over year. I think it was 0.8%. 
that's basically flat lawn. But here's the the interesting part. College houses, they're currently reporting a 10.7% year-over-year increase in rental rates. That same store, you know, is tracked by College House. Now, that's interesting, but it's not surprising because between the beginning of the 23 leasing season, so October of 2022, to the end of the leasing season in September, we saw a 9.8% increase. So, you know, my question really is, how much have rates increased or decreased between where they ended basically at move-in day and what rates are properties launching with this leasing season? So I asked Charlie if he could provide, you know, just the September year-end rates so we can figure that out. Now, a a quick disclaimer, the year-end numbers uh, that I'm going to use include all properties tracked by College House, where the current year rates for October are just properties that are syndicated with College House. And when I say syndicated, that means the data is all coming out of the management systems. A good portion of, of what they report on is actually coming from manual phone calls and other uploads, but it's a smaller group of properties compared. So just go with that and don't take this to the bank, but I think these numbers are really close. Let me break this down by floor plan group. I think that's the best way of doing it. So studio, we saw or seeing, I should say, a negative 2.66% decrease in rates. On ones, we're seeing a 0.64 increase. On two bedrooms, we're seeing a 1.52% increase. And three bedrooms, we're seeing a 3.92% increase. Four bedrooms, a 5.34% increase. Five bedrooms, which, you know, it's a mix of cottage style plus, you know, some high-end density type of products that are, you know, typically urban infill kind of stuff right around campus. That's coming in at a 6.79% increase and six bedrooms, which is not a big number of, um, of those that are even out there. That was coming in at a 3.93% decrease. Guys, I got to say, those are some really strong metrics. And quite honestly, I'm shocked. Now, granted, this is a nationwide average so every market is different. I understand that. But, you know, the, the MO in student housing, if you're using a tiered rental rates system, meaning you, you set triggers to raise rents when you hit certain pre-leasing percentages through the leasing season, numbers would typically be negative increases. I guess that means <laughs> decreases as they're more commonly known. So to see a 3.92% increase on four bedrooms right out of the gate, that's strong because typically you would roll that back when you're coming out of the gate with something at the beginning of the season. You're not going to be coming out with what you ended last season. You're typically going to come back with, you know, something that was in the last 50% of your, of your rate tiers, I guess is the best way to explain it. So again, a 3.92% increase on four bedrooms because four bedrooms is you know, largely what's out there in student housing, that's just really strong. Now, the question is, will it remain strong or will we see things peter out by the end of the semester? And, you know, we have to start pulling things back. I should probably explain what peter out means for our international listeners. It means gradually become weaker. (laughs) So, and I think we saw a little bit of that happen here in the U.S. Uh, We saw that happen in 
in May in a lot of markets. So what are your thoughts on what's ahead? Does the student housing continue to climb or, or will it peter out? would love to hear your input. If you've got an opinion on it, you can send that to me at Wes at studenthousinginsight.com. All of that being said, like I said, I think things are, the metrics are looking very strong and very optimistic, but we'll, yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. All right. So let's get to that recording of the panel discussion from September about the final snapshot of the 23 leasing season and what kind of impact these panelists think that that's going to have on operations and transactions and, and financing moving forward. To open up the call with my lovely panel, I'm going to kick it over to Jen Cassidy and ask for a couple minutes on what are the kind of the learnings from last year that you're taking into next? Yeah, thanks, Charlie. And I'm going to give you a shameless plug here for a minute. I go back three years and I think about the onset of the pandemic when your platform was just evolving and how beneficial it's been for all of us to have a platform with real-time data and just how great of a job you've done expanding the information you provide. And I think that's a big part of the industry's success is having that visibility. There's no more questioning what's happening real time. We actually have access to it. So it gives a lot more confidence, not just at a national level, but at a market level, what is happening and a little bit less reliance on phone calls and in-market intel. So that's been hugely beneficial. As someone that's operated in this industry for over 20 years, I'm sure I'm saying what everyone is saying, which is it's just unprecedented. This past year, like we assumed, was like nothing we've really ever seen before. Just a very, very quick start out the gate on leasing. I think it was the fastest fall I've ever seen. And it was on both fronts. It was renewals and new leases. But we did see a bit of a slowdown in the spring. It was not as quite quick sprint to the finish line as it was to the midway point. And so I know we were definitely paying very close attention to what markets were slowing down, why we perceived them to be slowing down. Some were a function of how pre-leased they were. Some were a function of, you know, early demand kind of dried up. So there were a lot of unique situations, but I would say obviously overall very positive a lot of lessons learned on the operations front. So, you know, where there's always a lot of conversations around how do we drive rents as operators, we were having conversations around how do we slow the pace down? How do we adjust our system so that we can't sign too many leases at the same price point, but how do we still deliver a great customer experience? And in this post pandemic world where there's so much more leasing happening after hours on holidays and all digitally, How do we protect the revenue knowing that there was a lot of opportunity? So I would say for operators and for our onsite teams who I give the onsite team members a huge round of applause for navigating a very, very high demand time period, we had to learn new operational practices to be able to adjust to the speed that the lease up was moving at. So I think 2023 was a great success. We're already seeing some early leasing for 2024. I have communities that are already pre-leased at 50%, if you can believe that, on September 21st. But, you know, we talked about this yesterday, and I think from my perspective, 2024 will be another strong year. I don't know that the rent growth will be 10%, but I do think it will still be outsized and much more significant than what we've seen in the last five or 10 years. 
but certainly um, a great call to the experience that we're delivering to our residents. Our residents are paying a higher price point for our community, so it's very important that we're delivering a great experience to them. And then really just paying attention market by market. So for any team members that are listening today that are on site, really understanding what's happening within your market, if communities are upgrading, if new development is coming in, and just really paying attention to those fundamentals, and then really watching at the floor plan level. Um, I've always been a proponent of you don't watch the overall pre-lease of your community, you watch the floor plan pre-lease. But I think this year, and your data shows that as well, you see the rent growth on the fours and fives and the sixes, that demand pattern tends to shift year over year in markets where one year the fours are hot, the next year's the threes are hot. So I really think the key to 2024 is burning off some concessions if you had them, um, if there's high gain to lease because we started really low and moved really quick, bringing up the bottom of the rent roll and just really paying attention to the demand at the floor plan level. Definitely agree. Definitely agree. It was a little dusty in here. Might have had a little tear in my eye, but uh, appreciate the chat <laughs> there. Um, but you'd think with, with the strong fundamentals there that it would make Chris Epps' life a lot easier. Chris, kind of walk me through what's happening from the capital market side. Yeah, put very well. I would tell you that it's like some dream fairy tale with a super maniacal twist to it, right? Jen has had historic 24 months of operations within the student housing space. We've never seen anything quite like it. You'd think that these things would just be flying off the shelves, However, interest rates have gone up 500 basis points and we cannot sell these deals. I've got what I will tell you, 1 million buyers looking to buy student housing for every real seller that I can bring to the table. But sellers these days, they say, yeah, there's worse things than picking up big rent checks. You realize that, right? And I can't argue with them. It's not an argument that I'm able to uh, weigh. And so what I'll tell you is that for the last 16 months, we've had a lot of practice. I've gotten really, really good at my craft. Nobody in my business has gotten rich, but we've all gotten better at what we've done, which um, my wife loves to hear when I come home at night. I've just gotten better at my job, but I'm not getting paid. In all seriousness, though, there have been some trades. Jen's rolling her eyes because yesterday on our pre-call, she's like, look, we're seeing the market soften up a little bit. Guys are getting creative. There's some recaps that are going on, which uh, I think is a really good creative way in which to proceed in this market. If you've got a capital partner that needs or wants out, or you've got some other reason to see some sort of transaction, a recap is a good way to mitigate some of the pain that exists in terms of going to get a new loan or a full tax readjustment or whatever it might be. There are some other sales that are occurring. It sounds a bit crass, but there's a saying in the brokerage business that you look for the big three, death, divorce, or financial ruin. If you've got one of those three, you're probably in the market regardless, right? Very few people are in this market because, hey, I watched CNBC today and it sounded like a really good opportunity to sell. It's because you have to. And so we spent a lot of time underwriting sellers, not the deal, right? We do a BOV a day, every day here at WND. It used to be, you just put a number on it, you take it to the market, you sell it. Now we're really getting forensic on the analysis of what this deal will actually sell for and understanding we actually got a seller, right? 
Otherwise, you just go back to that whole practice listing thing that I previously spoke about. Big picture, Charlie, transactions down 75% year over year. Cap rates up 100 to 150 basis points from where they were maybe at the end of 2021. One last point before I pause. Student is the bell of the ball. The Jennifer, your team, along with your contemporaries in the biz, have done a wonderful job showing you know how well student housing operates at WD. We've got fifty some odd offices across the U.S. We do all broker calls twice weekly. Used to be the Florida and Austin guys would hog the mic and they'd sell two caps, and student guys couldn't get a word in edgewise. Those can't give away deals now, and a lot of the conventional multifamily guys that would be looking to typically buy an Austin deal or a Florida deal or fill in the blank conventional deal have tried to get back into the student space, which is kind of interesting. A lot of new capital on the sidelines looking to get into the student space. I like to say I've got a lot of jobs as a broker. Standing between a man and his dreams is not one of them. So we welcome these folks into the space. That's what's going on in my world. Yeah, I'm talking to a lot of those same people saying, hey, well, we'd love some data if we can transact on a deal or get into real due diligence. So just practice listening. I'm getting better at my craft too. But we'll say <laughs> someone actually does come from this fairy tale land that's actually transacting. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about a little bit about what the debt markets are providing. As you mentioned, things are a little bit this way. What's going on on, on the, uh, the debt side of the world? Probably not the most popular guy on the call at the moment, but uh, just the messenger. <laughs> you can go on CNBC and, and watch for yourself this 10-year <laughs> climb. It's been a little frustrating. But yeah, no, it's it's been one of the slower years I've seen in my career, honestly, from a uh, year-to-date sales transaction standpoint. And, and look, it's been a slow, I mean, the average tenure per month since July of 2020, the tenure has that climbed on average of 10 basis points per month. So you can just tell, I mean, there's just not a lot of guys that want to come in there at negative leverage for, for more than a year, if at all. And so now with the four, you know, 440 tenure or closing in on four and a half, we've got debt in the mid sixes or even higher you know, sometimes lower than six and a quarter if you can get lower leverage or uh, live with 55, 55%, 50% leverage. But it's, if you're going to buy a student deal right now, you're going to be negative leverage most likely for at least a time. So I think the the people that are more long-term fixed rate holders, I think are okay because you can work your way out of that negative leverage position over time as long as you continue to grow rents. And, and I think Jen's right. I think we're going to see rent growth next year, but maybe not quite these eight to 10% growth that we're seeing this year in a lot of markets. But, you know, if you're a seven to 10 year long-term holder, you're okay with that because you can get out of that. If you can get a 65% loan with five years of IO or, or full-term IO, that's okay position. There's, it's the floating rate buyers that are struggling to kind of two to four year hold and then maybe flip or value add play. Those, it, it's hard to to make those numbers work. But from a big picture, you know, as many people know, Fannie and Freddie have typically dominated the perm side. That all changed and. In 21, when the debt fund stepped in and had a big year in student housing, doing 75% loan to value, three plus one plus one deals. It'd be interesting to see next year when a lot of the initial three-year terms on those deals come due, how those assets are performing and what the borrowers on those loans ultimately do. You know, going into the, the next year in 22, the banks really dominated. Banks, you know, no surprise, have been pulling back in a big way first on the construction side, but also on the perm side. They're still out there from deal to deal. You do have to cast a pretty wide net for the banks, get some regionals and just kind of see who's willing to come in there and compete. They are requiring a lot of deposits. So it's just something to think about if you're considering bank financing. Uh, there are still life insurance companies out there lending a suit of housing and kind of that 55, 60% leverage 
with maybe half term IO. And then of course the agencies, I mean, you know, Freddie Mac has had a surprisingly busy year in student housing, given how low the transaction volume has been. They've done just, just under one and a half billion in student housing this year. Fannie's not there. They're, they're less than a billion, but you know, going into the year, both agencies said they wanted to do about one and a half billion each in student housing. And I, you know, I thought that wasn't nearly enough thinking that capital market conditions would improve, but it's looking like that's about what they're going to end up doing. Uh, you know, I think uh, each of them by the year end that Fannie Freddie from a big picture are not going to come anywhere close to hitting their big caps, including conventional, all their other product types, just based on what's going on in the capital markets. But from the student housing standpoint, they're, you know, their books are, are performing well. And thanks in large part to what Charlie and Jen showed us on the first part of this call, we've never seen rent growth and leasing at this point of the stage ever in the student housing industry. And we're just hoping we could ride this momentum and we can get a little help from treasuries the rest of the year. I'm hoping we can still have a, a busy fourth quarter. Charlie, we got a question from somebody in the audience, Ashley Lott. Is there, and you talked a little bit of this, but is there a favor for deals with assumable loans that would have the interest rates locked in? And the follow-up yeah. is what percentage rate would be deemed favorable or acceptable? Yeah, great question. I, I can, I, Go ahead, Ed. Well, I was going to just say, I can maybe take that for an extent. I had a sample of like, what would be a perfect deal to sell? And the first bullet point I had on it was assumable loan. So actually, you're 100% right. If you had an assumable loan that was somewhere below five and a half, obviously that's well below where we'll probably could get it done today, right now as we sit. But let's call it five and a half with five years term left on it. Yahtzee. Yeah. Yeah. Let's and if you could, you've got buyers that are able to move forward. And if you can get at least five years of term and have a assumable debt, at least a hundred basis points below prevailing rates and have another year or two of IO as a cherry on top, then you've got the trifecta. And those are, those are great deals to sell if you're a seller and have assumable debt and have all those things happen. Because look, the deal's done. I mean, yeah, actually, if you got that deal, call me. <laughs> call me, actually. <laughs> From what we've seen in the transaction side, I mean, it's more so... Here's a story, right? It's it's a recap with an existing relationship. It's a long-term buyer that's okay being a little negative with a little negative leverage here or there, or their LTVs are just different than kind of what your average transaction looks like. Say we're here this time next year, what needs to change, right? Outside of interest rates going down, but Epp, I know we kind of touched on this in our, uh, our pre-call, but like, is there anything looming that may open the, hey, I have to sell type... Uh, I, yeah, I mean, barring just individual partnership issues or anything that might be going on with an individualized deal, I'd say the next logical big picture event that I can point to is just maturities, right? And so if you run, run a loan maturity report between 2024 to, and 2025, there's $4.5 billion worth of student housing loans that are coming due. In a typical world in year, a big chunk of those go call will and they do a cash out refi or a cash neutral refi and life is good. You just keep AUM and you're rolling. And the world they're in today, they go to Will and he says something that they haven't heard yet, which is a cash in refi. A small word, big deal, right? They don't want to bring money to the table to have a crappier interest rate and make less money. That doesn't sound fun. And so I see that probably changing the calculus for a lot of these folks and saying, gosh, you know, one thing to give my equity a portion of their equity back. It's a whole nother to tell them I need more equity for them to make a lesser return and push forward. So yeah. I expect, Charlie, 
that a lot of those guys come knocking and a lot of those BOVs start turning into listings when those maturities really start to roll out next year and into 2025. Yeah, I'll add to that. It's just if you, if you have a low maturity coming in the next 12 to 18 months and you're kind of on near that level of whether it's a cash in or a cash neutral type loan and you're at cash neutral now at current rates go down because a lot of people are playing the waiting game and they're like, well, maybe treasuries will come in in the next six months and then I'll be able to pull a little bit of cash out. And it's, yes, that's true. That may happen, but there's, you know, who knows what'll happen, but I think there's just as much pressure. The treasuries could go even higher. There's a lot of people think, you know, the fed won't even start lowering rates until possibly Q3 of next year. So it's just as likely we could be in a higher rate environment uh, yes, hope you get some rent growth on your fall lease up in 24, but you're just assuming a lot of things and increasing the chance of writing a big check for that cash in refinance if you don't want to sell. So it's just, if the deal works now, my advice is go take a bird in hand while you can, because it's it's choppy out there. Choppy out there. That's the name of the game. And, and, and Jen, kind of flipping it back over to your perspective. I know on our pre-call, we were talking about kind of like the intentional efforts on again, all aspects of the operational side, kind of what's front of mind as you, for lack of a better word, navigate one, certain instances, maybe that uh, Will and Epp have mentioned around maturities and working with their clients. Like, is it as much this year of a, a rent growth game versus an operational effort? Uh, kind of give some general thoughts there because I know there's two kind of ways to, to create value. I would say about six months ago, we really shifted to put a lot of focus on operational expenses. I mean, Dave and Matt did a good job of sort of teeing that conversation up, talking about, you know, labor and wages going up and just how high insurance costs have risen. So, you know, we've really looked at what can we control versus what can't we control? We can't control interest rates. We really can't control cap rates, but we can control NOI. And that's the combination of rent growth and expenses. We are not banking on rent growth continuing at the pace it has. So we know we've got to bring expenses down to keep NOI strong. One of the first areas we looked at was how can we run more efficient operations from a staffing perspective? Not because we want to eliminate roles on site, but anyone here that tries to hire right now knows we are competing with retail. We are competing with hospitality. For the first time on record in my career, leasing roles are turning over at a pace higher than maintenance. So it's become very challenging to fill those roles. And so we have been looking at centralization, which is a combination of using AI and partnership with remote centralized team members. I think a trend in this post-pandemic world, a lot of our on-site team members want to grow, but they maybe don't want to go to a regional manager and travel all the time, but they want the ability to work from home. And so centralized roles give them that opportunity. They provide lower payroll costs for our clients. And most importantly, AI is able to service our residents when we can't, when the office is closed, when it's a holiday, when it's a weekend. Our AI agents are able to answer their questions, get them through the lease process, schedule a tour. And I know this is a big topic industry-wide. Lots of groups are looking at it. It's not just helpful to reducing payroll, but also making sure that we deliver a great experience at the same time. And then obviously with a record pace on leasing, marketing costs are something we're paying close attention to. In addition, Everything, everything is digital now. So really investing marketing dollars in the right place, which is, you know, your digital front door, your website, 
Do you have a VLA? Can somebody really get a good sense of that virtual tour and that experience without physically coming in? And do you need those high ticket marketing items you maybe used to have, like the athletic sponsorships and things like that? In some places, the answer might be yes, but really focusing on what are the benchmarks and where should we be and being able to kind of dial things back in conjunction with the pace that leasing is moving. And then obviously utilities is just a big talking point. We definitely have lots of conversations with our clients about making capital investments to reduce ongoing OPEX in the utilities area. So I think those are really big focuses. I would say anyone in ops is probably very focused on expense reduction right now. I think this past year's insurance renewal was tough for everyone and just already seeing active storms this year. I live in Florida, so um, I think we're bracing ourselves that next year probably won't be much better. I know we've still got to get over to the uh, to the development delivery slide that you have, but I just wanted to ask, I'm going to put a poll out to a poll question out to everybody, kind of asking where they're coming out with rates. But just kind of interested in Jen, in your opinion, on you know how are you guys going to be looking at pushing rates this year? Is it something that you're coming out of the gate with everywhere that you can, or is it more of a let's kind of see what the market will allow? Yeah, we definitely took a look market by market at what's happening with enrollment. We don't have final numbers, obviously, for fall. But what was the forecast? Is there new supply coming? Where did the market end up? And how does that affect the capture ratio? If we started to see softening in occupancy and there's new supply, we're probably going to be more conservative. If it's a tight market, there's nothing new coming. Market got to 99%. I would say the difference this year is we're really granularly focused on what's on our current rent roll. These tiered renewal programs are not super successful in an environment like this. You have to take advantage of the supply and demand fundamentals. And then on our new lease side, I would say, you know, we've started in some places higher than I think we would have typically in the past. But again, very market driven based on what those fundamentals are. Gotcha. Chris and and Will, is there what are you guys going to be looking at over the next two to three months getting this lease, leasing season out? Is there anything that's going to serve as a red flag for you guys as it relates to any kind of pushback in rates or anything like that? Oh, it'll just be, it, there's so many, um, there's like a graveyard of OMs that I've got this year that's been built up where sellers have said, man, I don't want a discount. I want a premium to my purchase price. I'm going to go get 12% rent growth and you watch me. And so I'm having a fun time. I want them to succeed, by the way. This is coming off maybe as nasty. (laughs) I want them to make money hand over fist. I just want to be there with them when they do it. It'll be interesting to watch and see how it goes. I mean, Will and I have this golden rule of 80% greater is when buyers become bulls, 80% or lower, they become bears, right? If they get 80% and it's early in the year and they're hitting those markers, more power to them. They told me. And let's just go throw that on a seven cap now versus the six we could have gotten them this year. This is right at the time of year where we're underwriting the the new school year. So we look at hopefully get August and September collections and kind of lean on the T2, maybe T3 going forward. So my hope is that, look, we there is that sort of reset of expectations for buyers and sellers here in the next 30, 45 days. And we're going to have you know, a busy last quarter of closings, October, December at the, the T3 of these big rent growth that, you know, numbers we're seeing. And once we see those hard cash collections and, you know, hit the bank account. So we'll see if it actually happens. You know, obviously we've got the NMHC coming up in Las Vegas. So I'm curious to get a sense of the, of the vibe and the mood from 
market participants there and, and what comes out of that and hoping there's some deals that will start hitting the market so we can get transaction volume going again. Yeah. yeah, we need we need to keep both you guys busy. I will say the one thing that you know we, we talk about when we talk about the fundamentals is the supply and demand imbalance, right? I think the larger schools, your tier one universities are continuing to grow. I think occupancy is still above 94%. If you're a client of ours, you probably just got our year-end report we put out moments before this, not by design, uh, thanks to my marketing team. But <laughs> tier one uh, universities are roughly about 91 plus, per, 94, excuse me, plus percent, where, again, Jed, I know we talked about a pre-call, like supply is only an issue in certain markets, right? And you've seen a little bit of softening. You've seen some supply happen, but then the markets all of a sudden get much, much stronger because the enrollment then backs up there. You know, I know Cardinals got, what, eight new developments this year, setting the stage for my question. As we look at here on the on the, the deliveries the last three years, the average delivery occupancy in 21 and 22 is 87 and 86%. This year, it's down roughly, roughly about 9% there year over year as it relates to sorry, 8%, excuse me, as it relates to the occupancy where there was just about the same amount of deals, but the rate was higher by almost $100, a little over $100 a bed. From the new development side, right, in some of these markets that you're talking, the Tallahassee's, the Austin's, the, who else has got a large one? Madison, Wisconsin, where I know you guys are, you have a couple deals there. What's the playbook as it relates to new developments right now? I know, again, cost of capital is high. So these rents need to, to be there uh, from an underwriting perspective, make the deal pencil, but from an operational perspective and kind of communication, what's different now than, than in years past? Yeah. First of all, I was surprised by this slide. I think the 2023 occupancy is lower than what we saw in new development within our portfolio. But I think that speaks to the answer of the question, which is market selection. I mean, where what market you're going into obviously matters. And some of these projects get penciled and lots more projects get penciled at the same time. So unfortunate, that's unfortunate timing sometimes. But I would say I think there's a confidence going into 2024 based on the 2023 results, not just at you know a, an asset manager equity level, but in an operator level for our teams on site where they saw the ability to get rents at a different level and pace than they had in the past. Coming out the gates early on a new development is always so important. And when I say coming out the gates, it's just having a brand in a marketplace in the summer before you ever open up leasing, creating that word of mouth and that desire to want to live at the community. Our prospective renters are very, very digitally savvy. Your Instagram brand is everything. Um, you have to create an experience for people sight unseen that they really want to be a part of. So I think, you know, from getting the occupancy, it's all about being able to market the community correctly and also to for residents to see progress on construction and not to have these compromised construction deadlines. I know part of that 2023 occupancy is probably affected by some late deliveries, communities yep. that maybe haven't fully occupied yet because they're still trying to get COs. And as you know, um, in many markets, there is a fear around new construction as a result of that in years past. So especially as an operator, working with groups where we feel confident we are going to deliver. And then you know, year two for new developments is usually really great. And so for us, it's very exciting to open a community and to see the residents and the parents have a great experience. And then just to see that incredible demand year two, because you were able to deliver on what you marketed and people really want to choose to stay there. To add some context, I know that this chart is a little bit negative, 
But to just give some context to Jen's year two, more often than not, those are the fastest leasing projects in the market for the full leasing year. Once students can see the new shiny object, can experience that. And again, as you mentioned, deliver what they said. And, and rent growth, I think last year was roughly around 12% for those new deliveries, regardless of where they delivered. So strong year two outlook. Again, I know there were some delivery challenges from an on-time delivery perspective um, for a handful of markets. I wanted to ask that question to, to you and Jen. Uh, do you have a sense for how much of it was late delivery this year versus last year? I'm just kind of wondering, wondering if, because I, you know, I saw a lot of projects deliver late in 21 as well as last year. I'm just wondering if this year is more of a PTSD or if it's, there were that many deliveries that were late. Do you guys have any sense on that? I've spoken to a lot of, a lot of groups that are, you know, in that experience and it's not as much the supply chain issues that you saw in 21, right? I think a lot of even groups push deals in 21 and 22 because of the supply chain constraints and the cost of certain materials and et cetera. I think this year it's more, more from just a, it just took longer kind of coupled with the labor piece of the puzzle, just timing, right? I think it just took a little longer to deliver these large buildings because a lot, a lot of times what we're seeing is that it's, you know, you got to continue to innovate. You got to continue to build on these, you know, it's not <laughs> the most, uh, what do you call it, normalized flat parcel. Um, so I think there's definitely some challenges talking with our clients that are experiencing that. But for the most part, it's a week or two. It's not, hey, we're not delivering this building until 24. So again, down to the wire kind of things where I know those that have those currently are losing sleep. So I wish you all the best, but I, I don't think it's as much of a supply chain issue, more so of just kind of a speed of actually delivering the asset perspective. And Will, I know we didn't talk about this yesterday, but construction debt, anything special going on there that people need to it's, pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to find, honestly. Even some of the, the larger banks, it's, they've really pulled back. So a lot of times it's finding a, you know, like a, a regional bank or credit union, someone like that, but it's, you know, lower LTCs, obviously uh, short-term rates are rising. And so it's, Difficult to get those to pencils. The yield and costs are, are, you know, having to go up to make these deals pencil. So there's, you know, I think we're going to see fewer deliveries in 25 and 26 as a result of the, yeah. you know, scarcity of construction debt in the current environment. Yeah, yeah we're ballparking about 34,000 for this year and maybe a thousand or so more for 25. And again, mm-hmm. we saw the numbers actually being higher than about the around the 40,000 delivery this year and groups pushed. So you'll yeah. still see probably some of that trend where they don't pencil anymore. Great. Well, guys, I don't see any other questions that have come up here, but um, and we're at the top of the hour. So I want to thank each of you guys for spending the time today to help our audience understand this a little bit better. And actually, I want to end this poll really quick, see where we ended up at. So I did ask the survey question for site level and area managers, if your market had a new dev delivered this year, how did it perform? And the options were least at above 93%, that was 25% least between 85 and 92, that was at 50%, and least below 85% was at 25% of the respondents. So interesting there. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Wes, Chris, Will. Bye, everybody. Thank you all. Take care. Bye. Well, big thanks again to Will, Chris, and Jen for their insight. And a big thanks to Charlie Matthews and the College House team for the data that they are providing us on a weekly basis. They recently had a big announcement that College House is now part of a a new brand, I guess is the best way of putting it. They are now under 
a new name or a new company. I'm not exactly sure how it's structured, but it's called House Analytics. And the reason for the change is because the team is expanding into other sectors like senior housing. Um, so I guess there will be a senior house and maybe a military house or a co-living house. But all of that will be under the name House Analytics. So if, uh, if you weren't aware of that, you're now aware of that. I would also go out and if you follow them on LinkedIn, they now have a house analytics page on LinkedIn. Make sure you follow that as well. All right. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And if you found value in it, please share the podcast with your colleagues and give us a shout out on LinkedIn as well. That way we can get it in front of more student housing professionals. Also want to thank our sponsor for this episode, BSB Design. If you are needing an architect in the student housing space, give them a call. We'll have their info in the show notes. Again, big thanks to them for sponsoring this. Last but not least, if you are going to be at the NMHC Student Housing Conference in Las Vegas, which is next week, this episode should come out probably right before the start of the conference, please say hello. I I would love to meet you and, and talk about, you know, what you're doing in the student housing space. If you're on the operation side or if you're in the investment side, would would love to just, you know, get to know you. Well, guys, take care and stay safe and we'll see you on the next episode.